Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. There are so many great things going on at Collective right now, so make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church to stay in the loop. Now let's get into Sunday's message. I don't know about you, but I'm really thrown off that Thanksgiving is just about 10 days away. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, but I have no idea how we got to this point. It feels like we're sprinting toward Christmas, and before we know it, the new year will be here. And so because of that, I know if I feel that way, you probably feel that way too. Um, I'm going to start today by talking about some of the big things that are happening at Collective right now, especially as we head toward Christmas. And so let's talk about Christmas for a second. Uh, for the first time ever, we will be hosting four Christmas Eve services. Uh, we're trying to create as much space as possible. So we'll have two on Christmas Eve, Eve at 3 and 5 p.m., two on Christmas Eve at 3 and 5 p.m. And I'm actually going to talk more about these services in just a few weeks, but I want you all to start planning to be here. Uh, Christmas Eve is the most important time of the year, at least um, for churches like Collective. And what that means is that more people will come to church on Christmas Eve than at any other time of the year. And so I want you guys to start thinking about what does it mean to be here, but also to invite those friends and family and neighbors and coworkers who you want to come to church with you, because the odds of them saying yes are really high during this time of year. Also, as you see, uh, leading up to Christmas, we got a few big things, and that includes our annual Christmas toy drop on December 10th, which benefits the Frederick Rescue Mission. And on December 17th, we encourage you to wear your tacky sweaters or collective kids to wear their PJs. I guess if you're an adult, you can wear PJs. Just make sure they don't have a butt flap or anything weird like that. (laughs) And so mark these dates on your calendar. We'll talk more about them in the next few weeks. But before we know it, Christmas will be here. So I kind of wanted to break the ice on these. Um, And and like everything that we do at Collective, it's all on the Church Center app as well. So if you have that app, you click on coming up, and you can see what's going on. Another huge thing that's happening right now um, is that we are preparing to expand this auditorium the week after Christmas. Work will start. We can play more space, all the space. Uh, Work starts on December 26th, so that means we will not have church here on December 31st. If you show up that Sunday, there will be a construction crew in this building. They're probably going to put you to work, okay? So don't do that. No church on December 31st. And then... When we meet back on January 7th, we're going to have new service times. So starting January 7th, our service times will be 9.15 and 11 a.m. So that matters to you. It doesn't matter to second service, okay? They're at the same time. Sorry, guys. You have to bump up, okay? Uh, We need more time in between services, uh, and we need more space. And the reason for this is because Collective is growing, um, and we want to create more space. Right? We, we never want to just be comfortable with what we're doing. We want to create more opportunities for people to experience Jesus. Uh, just two weeks ago, we set record attendance here. And for the past two weeks during this service, they've had to bring in more chairs because so many people are showing up. And the reason why that's happening is because you all. Uh, so if you're upset about the service time change, just blame yourself, OK? <laughs> Uh, But this is happening because you guys are doing such a great job by making Sunday morning a priority. You guys are killing it when it comes to inviting people in your life to be here. But on top of that, I think more importantly, you are showing the people around you what Jesus can do in the lives of messy and broken people. And they see that, and they want some of that. And so they're showing up. Uh, And so because of all of that, we're making some changes that will allow us to create even more space for people to experience what Jesus can do in their lives. Now, with that being said, though, 
One of the things I need from you all right now and over the next few weeks before we make all these changes, uh, it has to do with seating in this auditorium. One thing that church leaders know is that when church auditoriums are 80% full, they feel completely full. Uh, and because some of you are still trying to do that whole social distancing thing, which isn't a thing anymore, uh, at 70% in this auditorium, we feel completely full. And so my challenge to you is this, and this is true in the weeks leading up to Christmas, but even more so on Christmas, if Collective is your church, Meaning, if this isn't your church home yet, you're still checking this out, you can ignore everything that I'm about to say. But if Collective is your church home, I need you to step up. I need you to show up on time, probably a little bit early, and then I need you to scoot up, and I need you to scoot in. Uh, I know some of you have been coming to Collective for a few years before the seats were filled up, and so you have your spot in the back, but honestly, I really don't care, okay? <laughs> Uh, best way I can put it is this, Collective isn't JetBlue, we're Southwest, and this is a full flight, okay? So make the room for people, please, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate those of you in the first few rows who clapped for that. Um, hey, hey, really what this comes down to is uh, you are here um, because you believe that Jesus can do something in your lives, and, and you believe in what is happening in this church. Don't eliminate the opportunity for that to happen to other people because you want extra space between you and the person next to you, Okay. So let's, let's do that for the next few weeks. I'm going to keep challenging you on that. And then I have one more huge thing to share with you all, but I actually can't tell you it's next Sunday. Uh, so I know, I know. I've been sworn to secrecy. Uh, so next week, be here as we close out the series. I have some really big news. Um, ultimately, there are just big things going on at Collective uh, because God is moving in big ways in this church and in this city. Uh, sorry, not sorry for the teaser. See you next week. All right. So over the past four weeks, we've been in this series called Marked, which is about when we read the Bible, there are these verses that mark who we are, verses that encourage us, that guide and protect us, that pick us up when we're feeling low, that remind us that we are loved and that we matter to God. And I've been challenging everyone at Collective to read their Bible. Uh, and one of the best things about this series so far is I've heard so many great stories about people in this church leaning in and reading their Bibles for the first time. And so really quickly, can we give it up for those people who are stepping into that place? I know that the Bible can feel really intimidating. Um, I understand that there's this fear that people often have uh, that stops them from picking it up and reading it. Um, but one thing that I know is true and that many of the people know in this church is true is when you start reading it, you will realize that it was written for you. It was written for us and that the Bible is truly the greatest love story ever written. It's a story about God's love for us and what he would do to show that and to prove that love. And so I'm really proud of every single one of you who have somehow grown in your Bible reading over the past few weeks. Now, I have been asked a few questions about Bible reading that I want to address to kick things off today. One question that my staff has brought to me is that people have been asking them, what if I don't own a Bible? And so there's two ways that we can solve that problem today. The first, if you don't own a Bible, there is an app called YouVersion, which is the best Bible app around. On the app, there are Bible plans that you can read about specific topics. Um, you can actually create groups on the app and you can like have conversations and like chat with people as you're reading it together. One of the reasons why I love the YouVersion app is because you can set notifications and it will rem remind you. And so I pick a time every single day where I know that I'm not gonna be too busy and it reminds me, hey, don't forget to read the Bible today. So you can download that. The second is that we will always, always, always have Bibles available for people for free at Next Steps. Um, even if we run out, we're just gonna keep buying more. We've handed out over 50 Bibles this year. And so if you want a Bible, and it's a good Bible, right? It's not like a paperback garbage thing. It's a good Bible. 
Um, you can grab one at Next Steps for free. The only promise and the only catch is that you have to promise that you're going to read it. Um, and so if you ever need it, you can go ahead and grab those Bibles. Another question that someone asked me was, what do I do when I finish the marked Bible reading plan on the app? And that's a great question. And so here's what I want to encourage you. If you get through the 35 days of this Bible plan, the next thing that you should do is you should start reading through the Gospels. The books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the biographies of Jesus, and this is where you should start. You do not need to start in the book of Genesis. Once you read through the Gospels, I encourage you to keep reading. Read the next book. It's called the book of Acts, and this is about the start of the church. This is about what the church is supposed to look like, and honestly, it'll show you a lot of why we do what we do at Collective. From there, just keep reading through the New Testament. Once you get through that, if you're feeling adventurous, jump back to the Old Testament, read the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, or ultimately you can just circle back around to the Gospels and read that all over again. You are allowed to do that. Um, but I just want to encourage you, as you get through this series, you've started to create this habit, just keep going, okay? Start by reading the Gospels, book of Acts, and then continue through the New Testament. Now, over the past few weeks in this series, uh, what we've been talking about is the impact that Scripture has on our lives. And so we learned in week one that Scripture teaches us a better way to live. Week two was about how Scripture teaches us we are loved. Last week, we talked about how, how Scripture teaches us to trust God. And for today, if you're taking notes, here's the first thing I want you to write down. Scripture teaches us there is grace. Scripture teaches us there is grace. And so justice is the idea of getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting something better than what we deserve. Grace means that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you could do to make God love you less. And at Collective, we say that grace is endless second chances. The problem, as author Philip Yancey puts it, is that we live in a world full of ungrace. I think the best example of this right now is cancel culture. Cancel culture is the worst. It really is. Cancel culture is toxic. Um, and that's not just my opinion. That is what scientists and psychologists are saying right now. It's awful. Cancel culture is terrible because it encourages shame over accountability. Cancel culture says that people can't change, that people can't grow. Cancel culture says that one mistake will define a person for the rest of their lives, that an addiction is an identity and that there are no second chances. Cancel culture is the epitome of ungrace. But that is what the world is offering right now. And so we live in this world of ungrace. And what we do is we end up bringing that into our marriages and into our relationships, into our mental health. But scripture teaches us that there is grace. And grace is a gift from God. Romans 3.23 says this, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, it feels weird to even have to say this, but you do know that we all sin. Right, like there are no perfect people in this space right now. We mess up, we fall short of what God wants for our lives. And typically, this is by choice, meaning we choose our own way over God's. And we do this when it comes to sex, we do this when it comes to how we treat each other, we do this when it comes to how we steward the gifts that God has given us, things like time and money and talents. We do this when it comes to what we put our faith and our trust in. Right, so everyone has sinned. People who follow Jesus, people who don't follow Jesus. We all walk out of alignment with what God wants for our lives. We all fall short. And what happens is that sin creates a separation between us and God. It's a void that we can't fill on our own. And because we have sin, because we disobey God, what does he do? He cancels us. 
right? He tells us that we'll always be our sin, that we can never change, that we lost our chance to be connected to him, that there is no forgiveness, there are no second chances or third chances or fourth or fifth or sixth. Of course not. Of course that isn't what God does to us because there is grace. Let's keep reading. Verse 24 says this, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. This is what we call the gospel or the good news. God sent his son Jesus to pay the debt that our sin creates, to fill that void between us and God. And we don't deserve that because it's a gift. And grace is what frees us from our sin. Grace is why we can have a new life in Christ. Grace is why we can experience redemption in our story. There is grace and it never runs out. In John 1.16, it says this, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. But that isn't all that scripture says about grace, right? Because it's a great thing that God gives us this gift. The question is, what do we do with that? Now, there are a few things about grace that we have to understand. Here's the first thing. It comes from Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And so here's the first thing I want you to write down. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by what we can do. We cannot earn heaven. There is no 12-step process for eternity with God. You can't attend a class and make a sacrament and say a prayer three times and magically get some ticket for salvation because it's not about what we can do. It's about what God has done. And we are saved by grace when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Life isn't a pick-your-own-adventure because all roads lead to the same place. That's not the way that it works. Heaven is real, and hell is real, and grace is real. Grace is the reason we get to be in a relationship with God. Grace is why we can spend eternity in heaven. But we are saved by grace when we believe and trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah, the one that was sent to rescue us from our sin. And grace is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. One of my favorite stories about C.S. Lewis, uh, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world were debating if any belief was unique to the Christian faith. And they talked about incarnation, but other religions actually have versions of God's appearing in human form. They talked about resurrection. Uh, again, other religions actually have people coming back from death. And so the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. And he asked, what's the rumpus about? His colleagues replied that they were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, his colleagues agreed the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the, Mo the Muslim code of law, each of these offer ways to earn approval but only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. That's grace. Other religions have a list of laws or pillars that lay out things that people have to do in order to gain heaven. But Christianity is the only religion that teaches that God came for us. But it's not just about, that it's not about what we can do, but what about God did? That is a good thing. 
Because if it was on us and our perfection and about what we did, we would always fall short. We are saved by grace through faith. Here's the second thing about grace that we need to understand. Grace has always been God's plan. 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 says this, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, grace, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. God's plan since the beginning of time was grace. Grace is not plan B, C, D, E, or F. Grace is plan A. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life, a life free from sin because it was part of the plan. Jesus was betrayed, arrested, beaten, and mocked because it was part of the plan. Jesus was put up on a cross experiencing the most excruciating death known to man because it was part of the plan. He was buried in a tomb because it was part of the plan. He would conquer death and rise from the grave. He would, br- he would break the power of death and illuminate the way because it was part of the plan. And he would do all this to prove that his promises could be trusted because it was part of the plan. And so that we could live in grace and be saved. That was the plan. Here's the thing, though, and I need you to lean in for a second. It is on us to decide whether or not we want to be a part of this plan or not. Grace has always been a part of God's plan, but how we respond to grace is up to us. Let's read the beginning of verse 10 again. It says this, And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul, who wrote this, says, Grace is plain to see. That grace is right in front of us. That it's so obvious, the thing is that we can't miss it. But belief in accepting the gift of grace from God is on us. God does not force his grace on us. It is our decision. It is our choice. And when we choose grace, when we accept grace, when we believe, the way that we respond to that is baptism. In the Bible, whenever someone puts their faith in Jesus, the action tied to that decision is baptism. The best example of this comes from Acts 2. Peter, who was Jesus' closest friend, preaches a whole sermon about grace. He tells thousands of people that Jesus was the son of God, that he conquered the grave, and they all believe. And then they ask, what do we do? Okay, now that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, what's the next thing that we need to do? And this is how Peter responds in Acts 2, 38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn toward God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells them to turn away from the way that you are living, trust God, and get baptized. And what he says is be immersed in water. That's the word baptism literally means And this symbolizes their own death, burial, and resurrection. And if you have not given your life to Christ yet, or if you haven't been baptized yet, I don't know if there's a better time than right now. As we talk about Christmas, as we think about Christmas, I believe that this is the best way to celebrate the birth of our Savior and the hope that it brings. I also think it's the best way to end a year so you can start 2024 living in grace. And the challenge is the same for those of you who've been following Jesus for a while and who've never been baptized. The longest gap between belief and baptism by immersion in scripture is three days, three days. And so for some of you, you've never gone public with your faith through baptism. You've never been baptized. Ultimately, we wanna have a conversation with you. And so we encourage you to check the baptism box and one of my staff members will call you this week to talk, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to say yes to grace? What does it mean to take this next step? 
And listen, uh, sometimes when I preach about baptism after service, people will come up to me and say, well, we're saved by grace through faith, so why get baptized? Or doesn't that make baptism a work? And the reason we get baptized is because that is how we respond. That is how we celebrate putting our faith in Jesus. And if you continue to read through the Bible after this series and you read the Gospels and you jump over to the book of Acts, what you'll read is that every single person who put their faith in the resurrected Christ gets baptized. And so I challenge you and encourage you to wrestle with that next step as you wrestle with this idea of grace. Now, here's the third thing about grace that I want you to write down. God's grace is all we need. One time, the apostle Paul was struggling. And we actually don't know what was going on in his life. There's a lot of speculation. But what we do know is that it was hard. And he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 8. He says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Three times Paul asked God to take away the pain or the problems or the tension. And God responded by saying, you have my grace and my grace is all you need. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, though. Grace isn't going to pay my bills. Grace isn't going to help me find a significant other. Grace won't get me the good grade on the test that's coming up. Grace isn't going to make the interest rate on houses go down. And you are right. Not enough grace for that. But I think that's why it's so important that Paul says God's grace is all we need. Because even when you're struggling paycheck to paycheck, even when you're single and you don't want to be, or even when your marriage fell apart, or even when the dream house or the dream vacation or the dream job doesn't exist, we still have the grace of God, something better than what we deserve. We still have grace for our souls and the opportunity to spend eternity in heaven, an eternity that John describes like this in Revelation 21.4. He says, eternity is a place where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And isn't that what we long for? Isn't that so much of what we do and desire here on this earth? Because we want to live this life without pain, without sorrow, without problems, without death. And everything we do is to pursue those feelings. But the thing is, it's not possible on this side of eternity. But that is why grace is all we need. It's everything that we need from God, not want, but need. God's grace is more than enough to give you the strength you need to go through whatever you are going through in your life right now. And I I don't know your life. I don't know what you're going through. I know uh, what a lot of people in this church are struggling with, and it's a lot. But here's what I know. God's grace is all we need. You want to have the best marriage possible. It's grace. You want to forgive that person that hurt you so you can move on with your life, it's grace. You want to let go of the shame of the addiction that has crushed you for so many years, it's grace. You want to love yourself the way that God loves you, it's grace. You want to make it through the storm that you are in right now, it's grace. You want to enjoy the mountaintop, the good things that are happening in your life right now, it's grace. You want more hope, grace. More peace, grace. More joy, grace. It's all grace because grace is life-changing and life-giving and grace is all we need. One of my top five favorite books is by author Philip Yancey, and it's called What's So Amazing About Grace. And after writing the book, Yancey was asked to share about the power of grace, and he shared this story. In South Africa, following the fall of the apartheid, which was a systemic segregation and discrimination on the grounds of race, Nelson Mandela had risen to power, and to promote healing in South Africa, he instituted the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. 
And the rules were very simple. There had been a lot of terrible things done in the name of apartheid. But anyone who had actually done these atrocities could come before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission led by Bishop Desmond Tutu. And what they could do is they could confess what they had done. And if they did that, they could never be prosecuted for their crimes. Legally, they were off the hook. There would be mercy, meaning they would not get what they deserved. One of the most horrific stories that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was about a man named Officer Vanderbrook. Vanderbrook was an Afrikaans police officer in charge of a certain township. And one day he went to investigate a 16-year-old boy who had been known for causing trouble against the government. And so Vanderbrook and his fellow police officers went to his house and called the young boy out into the yard. And while the boy's mother was on the porch, Vanderbrook shot and killed her 16-year-old son. And then they lit the body on fire. But that wasn't all. After a few weeks, they came back and arrested the husband. And she didn't see him again for four years. During that time, there wasn't a letter, there wasn't a phone call, there wasn't an officer showing up at the door to explain why he was taken away. There was nothing. But four years later, Vanderbrook and his officers returned to her house and asked if she wanted to see her husband. And although she was afraid, she said yes. And she assumed she was, he was dead, but she didn't care. She just wanted to see her husband one last time. And so they put her in the car and drove her to where he was being held and he was alive. She started crying tears of joy because she never thought she'd see him again, but then they grabbed her husband, bound him up, lit him on fire, and they burned him to death in front of his wife. And as you can imagine, the courtroom hearing this case is completely silent as they listen to the detailed testimony from Vanderbrook. And he knew the rules, so he proceeded to say, I never should have done any of this. I'm very sorry. I beg your forgiveness. Now, part of the rules of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was that the victim was given a chance to speak. It was their choice. They didn't have to. But if they chose to respond, they were not required to forgive or extend grace. But this woman, who was very old at this point, walked up front, and she looked at Vanderbrook, the man who had taken everything from her, and she said, I have three things I want to say to you. First, I want you to tell me where you buried the remains of my husband and my son because I'd like to give them a proper burial. Vanderbrook nodded yes. Second, I want you to know I forgive you. You don't deserve it, but God forgave me and I don't deserve it, so I want to give you the same forgiveness that he gave me. Third, she said, I'm an old woman, but I have a lot of love left to give. You took away the people I love the most. Would you be willing to come to my house one day a week so I could pour out some of the love I have left on you? And the courtroom was completely silent. But then the silence was broken when someone from the back started singing a song, a song that was written a few hundred years earlier by a slave trader who knew a thing or two about grace. And he started singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Everyone in the courtroom was so overcome by this moment that they joined in, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. But the only person that didn't sing along was Officer Vanderbrook because he was unconscious. He'd become so overcome by the moment that he passed out. And when Philip Yancey tells this story, he likes to think that the officer Vanderbrook was knocked unconscious by grace. This is the type of grace that God extends to us every single day. Because every second there is grace, every minute there is grace, every hour there is grace. So let me finish with this. If God's grace is all we need, is God's grace all you want? Or do you want something more? 
Do you want something different from God, something different than better than what you deserve, something different than endless second chances? Do you want something different than grace upon grace, something different than a gift freely given from a God who loves you so much that he would give up everything, including his own son, for you? If God's grace is all you need, is God's grace all you want? Let's pray. God, we are, um, we are broken people. God, we are sinful people. We are jacked up people. We've made so many mistakes. And God, a lot, of the, a lot of times those mistakes are things that we chose to do. And because of that, we've hurt ourselves, we've hurt others. And if we think about the way the world treats us because of our mistakes, it would mean that we're not good enough, we get canceled, we don't deserve an opportunity to grow, to heal, to be different to get a second chance, to try again. And God, oftentimes we sit in that place because that is the world, what the world tells us. But when we read the Bible and when we dig into scripture, one of the things that we learn is that there is grace. This gift freely given because you love us so much, even though we don't deserve it. And this grace is something better than we ever could earn or work for on our own. And you tell us to live in the place of grace to have marriages full of grace and relationships full of grace and a faith full of grace. And God, even though we want to follow you and we screw up over and over and over again, you still give us grace. So God, I just pray as we read these verses, as we, we talk about this big idea of grace, God, that the people in this room that feel like they don't deserve grace understand that they don't, but that is why it is so good. God, I do not deserve grace for the things that I have done, but you give it anyways. And so God, help us live in the place of understanding that grace comes freely and there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. But God, more importantly, help us live that out. God, whether that be in our own relationships or when it comes to our faith, let us receive that grace, let us believe, let us trust you and put our faith in you. God, we're so thankful that there's nothing we can do to make you love us more, and there's nothing you can do to make you love us less. God, thank you for your grace. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.